verses 1 to 11. So Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Hello, everyone. It is wonderful uh, to have you here. Let me add my welcome to Foxes. Uh, my name's Wal, I'm the senior minister here at NCA Church, and uh, it's just delightful to have you with us. Um, as we continue this series that we've called Encapsulate, because what we're trying to do in this series is to encapsulate, to sum up uh, the marks of NCA Church, not so much who we are today, but who we would love to be with God's help into the future, who we would love to be with God's help in some ways as a better version of ourselves, as a, as a more mature in Christ version of ourselves. If you were here last week, you'll remember that there is also the deliberate play on the word encapsulate. And I said last week it was one of the few English words that has the letters NCA in it. And the person who was running the computer at our evening service last week, they saw that line in my sermon text and very quickly, much faster than I would have been able to, did a word search, produced the whole list and, um, and formatted it with the letters NCA. And so that, unknowingly to me, that flashed up behind me during my sermon last week just to prove me wrong. This is what I'm working with in our evening service. Um, in my defence, so I did say it was one of the few really useful English words that has the letters NCA in it. I decided quite early on that uncanonical probably wouldn't be the right name for this sermon series. Anyway, uh, last week we talked about uh, the idea of us being a church that is overflowing with thankfulness uh, for all the gifts that God has given to us and above all for Christ. And uh, it was really lovely during the week to get an email from someone in our church family who gave me a picture of uh, their setup at a cafe and they had their piece of paper and the alphabet written down the left, A to Z, and they were starting to fill it out and just sharing how helpful they were finding that as an exercise to do. I wonder how you went this week with thankfulness and overflowing with thankfulness. Uh, but today we're, we're thinking about not living by bread alone, by which we really mean uh, both individually and together as a church, humbly depending upon the Word of God. 
Uh, you can see on the outline, if you've got it there, you've got the same kind of big headings that we used last week. And so we'll start with the idea of what the Bible says. As we think about us being a church that is humbly dependent on the Word of God, our starting point really has to be the fact that the God of the Bible is a God of Word. He is a God who communicates and who speaks, even on the very first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. When the earth was still formless and empty and darkness lay over the surface of the deep and ten times in Genesis 1 we hear the refrain and God said from let there be light all the way up to the blessing with which he blessed the first man and woman that he had made and as many times as we hear that God said so we also are assured by the writer of Genesis that it was so which teaches us that God's word is a powerful word and it is a life-giving word. And we also learn that God's word is his point of contact with the creation. It's the basis upon which we must relate to him. So you've got this very particular relationship that's now established between God and the world that he has made, whereby God rules sovereignly over the creation by his powerful life-giving word on which the world depends completely even for its very existence. And yet when it comes to creation, it turns out that God's word is not the only one to consider for the creation itself also speaks a word about God. That's what we heard in Psalm 19, isn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. You think of the very best nature documentary you've ever seen on TV. Probably, perhaps with that um, just lovely soothing voice. A little bit scratchy, but lovely soothing voice of David Attenborough narrating his way through the most extraordinary footage or a documentary on the planets with the kind of childlike excitement of Brian Cox. Um, this world that God has made is so wonderfully fit for human study. Uh, it is so magnificent and marvellous and majestic and mysterious. And in words of never-ending praise, it all testifies to the glory of the God who made it. It all testifies to his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. And yet, verse 3, there is a difficulty in all this, isn't there, of Psalm 19? They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. In other words, there is actually some kind of ambiguity to the word that creation speaks about God, because it is a word without words. And it's a proclamation without speech and it's a revelation without voice. Which means that it is possible for people now to study this world in remarkable depth and yet still remain ignorant of the God who stands behind it and whose voice has called it all into existence. It's not that there's any problem with the testimony of creation. But there is a problem with us who receive creation's testimony. Because you see, back in the book of Genesis, after Genesis 1 and 2 comes Genesis 3, where the first man and woman, representing in themselves all humanity, all of us, 
They rebel against God. And it's a rebellion that has at its very heart the rejection of God's word. Do you remember what the serpent said to the woman? Genesis 3 verse 1. Did God really say? And it all flows from there. So the serpent doubts God's word and the woman distorts God's word and the man disobeys God's word. And so in the Bible, sin is never ever presented to us simply as the breaking of so many moral rules. No, sin is personal and sin is relational. It is the rejection of and the rebellion against God. It's the refusal to accept the sovereign rule that is rightly his as the creator of the whole world and which he exercises by his powerful life-giving word. And so now you see another word from God is needed, a different word, a better word, a word of God in salvation. In the Old Testament, there are so many places we could go to explore this theme, but for the people of Israel, perhaps the most important event of their national life together was the day that God gathered them together at Mount Sinai after he had powerfully rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And here's how Moses reflected on what happened that day in Deuteronomy 4. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words. You came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. I did wonder uh, during the week whether I should perhaps try to illustrate just how striking this experience would have been for the people of Israel. By pre pre I suggested it to Fox just briefly and preaching my sermon from behind the vestry doors there rather than being out here at the, the lectern. Now, for a number of reasons, I decided I wouldn't do that. And I think that's probably better. But you see, as in creation, so too in salvation. It is God's word, which is his point of contact with his people. It's the basis on which they must relate to him. And for the people of Israel to have God's word like this, it was just the most sublime privilege. Psalm 147. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He's done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. But it's not just privilege, it's also joyful delight, which is what we heard in the middle of Psalm 19 that we read before. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord, they are radiant. They give light to the eyes. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. Uh, some of you know we've got a couple of beekeepers here at church. Um, I mentioned to one of them on the way in this morning that I was men mentioning honey and so on in my sermon. And they said, oh, I've got a jar of fresh honey here with me. And so perhaps, you know, you can ask me who that was later and you can go and sample their wares. Um, but I've been fortunate at times to, to have a, a go of the, the honeycomb straight from the hive. And um, I love a crunchy bar as, next to, as much as the next person, but 
when that honeycomb just comes straight from the hive, it's just a whole different level, isn't it? The sweetness of it is extraordinary. And that's how David regards the word of God. Even his law, his statutes, his precepts, his commands, his decrees. Not, I take it, because David had any particular love of rules and regulations, but because they were God's. And because what is God's is so very, very good. And there is nothing that the people of God should treasure more, even as a deer pants for streams of water, than to hear and to obey and to believe and to humbly depend on the word their God has given them. Now, of course, God's word in salvation doesn't end with the Old Testament. For us, it is in the gospel message concerning Jesus Christ that we now find the very highest point and and pinnacle of God's word in salvation. For in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. His son who is rightly able to be introduced to us at the beginning of John's Gospel as the Word. The Word which was with God in the beginning and which was God. The Word which became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we heard from Matthew's Gospel how right at the start of his ministry, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness and And just like the first man and woman back in the garden or like the people of Israel out in the wilderness, it was essentially a contest over the word of God. For three times, Satan offers Jesus a way to serve himself rather than serving God. A shortcut to glory without any suffering. And of course, if Jesus fails here, then the whole game is up and salvation is lost. But thanks be to God and how wonderfully reassuring it is for us that where the first man and woman failed and Israel after them, Jesus did not. And three times he resists temptation by turning to the scriptures, the very word that God had entrusted to his people. which shows us that we don't need to divide God's promises and God's commands or human faith and obedience. God's promises and commands are really the same thing. To trust God and to obey God is all of the same peace. But it's not just here in the wilderness that Jesus trusts and obeys the word of God. It's all the way through to his suffering and death and then beyond even to the glory of his resurrection. Or in Luke 24, Jesus knew this is what is written in the scriptures. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to the whole world, all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And that's what we find. We move into the book of Acts and on into the rest of the New Testament and the word of God is not only now the Old Testament but also includes all the apostolic preaching and teaching about Jesus. And so for us now it is all scripture, Old Testament and New Testament combined that constitutes the word of God 
and that proclaims to us God's word in salvation. And throughout the New Testament, it is clear that God's people hold just the same attitude to God's word as David did in Psalm 19. Like in Acts chapter 2, where the first Christian believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Or the Berean Jews in Acts 17, who received the message with great eagerness and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Or the wonderful Thessalonians who, when they heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul, they accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Or the encouragement to the Colossians that we heard last week and that we'll think about again in a couple of minutes. Let the message of Christ, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. Or Paul's instruction to Timothy, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. See, the attitude of Psalm 19, that is not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just something peculiar to David. It is the attitude that God's people in every age have to the word of God. Or at least it's the attitude that we are meant to have. Why does this matter though? Why is it important for us to be a church that lives not by bread alone but in humble dependence on the word of God? Uh, I've got a couple of reasons. First of all, because it does reflect who God is, the God who speaks, the God who communicates, a God of word, how appalling it would be, how irresponsible it would be, how utterly inexcusable it would be if we know that God has spoken a powerful and life-giving word were we then to fail to listen to it. But on the flip side, uh, what a wonderful testimony it would be, how extraordinary it would be if, if, if the people around us in this part of Sydney, simply because of the way that we devote ourselves to listening carefully to God's word, but they were to deduce from that that this is what God is like. A God who speaks and who lovingly rules his people by his powerful life-giving word. Now, Christians were always known as people of the book. So it reflects who God is. Second, it does reflect who we are, which is completely dependent on the word of God. So maybe this is at least part of of what we heard from Jesus when he resisted Satan in the wilderness and he quoted those striking words from the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, some of you might know this already. Last year I caught hold of the reality TV show Alone on SBS. And uh, what happens in this show is they get 10 survivalists and they, they plonk them out in the, the kind of harsh woodlands of British Columbia on the west coast of Canada. And uh, they get 10 tools of their own choice and they get a couple of motion sensitive cameras and they just get plonked among the three kind of natural predators in that area, which is the, the cougars and the wolves and the bears. And basically they just see how long you can last. And they can radio out to be rescued, but apart from that, they are alone. I don't know that I recommend it. Like, I have enjoyed it, but I, I, I'm still not sure, really. But, you know, the first 24 hours, I think, are always the key, and you can actually see them, uh, you know, they're talking to the camera and explaining their thinking, and they're, they're revealing their priorities. And, of course, 
I mean, for me, this is like, oh, that's kind of handy. I'll remember that if I ever get stuck in British Columbia. But some of you will know this. You know, drinkable water, first of all, then food and shelter, last of all. That, that's the survival priorities. According to Jesus, though, that's not enough. Not for life with a capital L. Bread alone merely feeds the body. But for the gift of life that God longs to give us, we need the word of God. As the Apostle Peter puts it, we need to be born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. A third reason it's important for us to live in humble dependence upon the word of God is because the way that God chooses to make himself known is also the way that we must relate to him. Eight years ago when we lived in St Ives, there was a Chargrill Charlie's up on um, Onevale Road. And uh, one of our sons at a much younger age, he had the habit of calling it Charcoal Charlie's. It's just more alliterative, I guess, for him. And I pointed out to him one day that it was actually Chargrill Charlie's, to which he replied, nah, I prefer Charcoal Charlie's. But it doesn't actually work that way, does it? If we are going to relate to someone, it just has to be on the basis of how they have revealed themselves and made themselves known. It's not up to us to determine who we think they will be. And since God has chosen to reveal himself through his word, not primarily by experience, not primarily by human reason or intuition, not by church tradition, but by his word, that is how God has chosen to make himself known. His word must be the basis for how we relate to him and his word must be the basis of all we believe and his word must be the basis of what we proclaim, not only about him but also about ourselves and his word must be the basis of the way that we live and what it looks like for us to put away sin and pursue holiness. Now I suspect I probably won't get too many arguments on this point. Perhaps I could have saved us all a lot of time if I just said them at the start and got us all to nod in agreement. But here's the thing. I think it's probably far more challenging for us to actually live this way in practice than it is for us to agree that this is how we should live. And the test case really comes at any point when the things we hear from the word of God are in disagreement with the things that we think about a given issue. When there's a tension there, that's the real test case. What will we hold as our authority in that position? Will we live by the word of God or will we live by experience or by reason or by church tradition? What will we hold as our authority? Many years ago, I was preaching through Romans, and uh, one of the topics that comes up in Romans is the idea of predestination, and lots of people find this a hard topic, but it's the idea that our salvation in Christ is completely secure, because long before we knew anything about it, even in fact before the creation of the world, God has predestined those who will respond to the gospel message with repentance and faith. And so our salvation is a gift from God. Even as much as we are to respond to the message of salvation, it is a gift from God, first of all. That Monday morning, uh, there was a dear congregation member, and she really was very dear, 
And she came into the church office uh, boldly declaring, oh, I've never believed in predestination. Here's what I think happens. Friends, if we are to live by the word of God, that simply will not do. And I hope you never think that you hear anyone preaching from the front here at church in such a way that you think all they're doing is sharing their opinion. Rather than opening up the word of God. And I hope we will build a habit of being people who as we listen have the word of God open, that we might test what we hear not to take my word for it or Fox's word for it or anyone else's word for it, but to test it by the word of God. For if God has spoken, which he clearly has, then let us relate to him accordingly. Let us receive his word and believe his word and obey his word and love his word and be matured by his word. That makes known to us the way of salvation through trusting in Christ. Uh, finally then, let me give a couple of practical pastoral suggestions. I hope you'll find them that. Uh, which will help us live, not by bread alone, but by every word, by the dependence on the word of God. Uh, first, I, I want to suggest, let's commit to making this a regular subject of prayer. Not just for ourselves and our families, but also again for one another here in our church, in this fellowship in which God has placed us. As we said last week, there may be many, many things that we cannot pray for each other about in detail because we don't know about them in detail. But here is something that we can always pray for each other and it will always be profitable. Let's regularly ask that God in his mercy would produce in each one of us and all together as a church a heartfelt longing for his word and a deep and joyful love of his word and a disciplined devotion to his word and a mature, obedient faith in his word. Surely this is the kind of prayer that God delights to answer. Uh, second, let's commit to making this a regular subject of conversation with one another. Because for most of us, in the things of life that really matter, loving accountability is a help, not a hindrance. I think that's true for most of us. So make it your habit, without any hint of boasting or pride, to share with others what you've been reading in the Bible and how it has been helping you to trust and obey God's promises. Make it your habit, without any hint of judgment or superiority, to ask others what they have been reading in the Bible and how it's been helping them to trust and obey God's promises. Now, I've got an old friend who does this with me every time we catch up. I've kind of caught the pattern now. We only catch up infrequently, but I've caught the pattern every time. Uh, regular as clockwork, somewhere in the conversation, he will ask me how my Bible reading is going. And when I ask him how he's going, he will always include, even in that general question that I've asked, he will always include something about how his Bible reading is going. Now, of course, now that I've caught the pattern, and if I'm really organised, I can plan ahead and make sure that I've done my quiet times every day for the week before we meet. And 
Can you see how easily we become legalistic about this? I fall prey to that. I'm sure you do. But that's not why he brings Bible reading into nearly every conversation that we have together. He, he just does it because his heart is the same as David's in Psalm 19. He delights in God's word because he knows that it makes it him wise for salvation through trusting in Christ. And he longs that others would know the same delight. So it's just part of what he talks about. Well, let's commit to making it part of what we talk about. Third, and perhaps most obviously of all, let's actually read God's word. Let's actually not live by bread alone, but genuinely in humble, trusting dependence on the powerful, life-giving word of God. I won't spend time now going through all the different tools that can help us with this, different apps for your phone, different Bible reading plans, different devotional tools that can help you. Uh, safe to say, though, that in many ways there has never been more help around than there is today for us as God's people to devote ourselves to God's word. But I do love the advice in uh, Don Carson's kind of two-year devotional, a massive thing, for the love of God. Maybe some of you have used it. It uses an old Bible reading plan by a Scottish Presbyterian minister, Robert Murray McShane. But I love his, his advice in the start of that book. He says, look, if you are pressed for time and you have to skip something, skip this book and read the Bible instead. That was his goal in writing the book. And yet again, how easily we could find ourselves maybe going, well, let me read what Don Carson says, a giant, you know, like brilliant Christian thing. Let me read what Don Carson says and that'll help me understand the Bible that I haven't yet read. No, skip that, read the Bible. I wonder though if for most of us the, the biggest obstacle we feel that, that is against us is, is just time. Uh, we want to read God's word. We intend to read God's word. We, we would like to read God's word but we just find it hard to fit in. And I know those struggles. And without preaching the whole sermon again but for all the reasons we've already thought about friends this simply will not do. God calls us to throw off everything that hinders and to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. And we must learn to walk with the Spirit and we must build a godly discipline of being regularly in God's Word, soaking it in, saturating ourselves in it, that we might be formed by it from the inside out. And then finally, uh, being humbly dependent on the word of God, that is not, of course, something just for us to do individually. I, I suspect that's how we can easily hear a sermon like this and we, we just kind of go away and think, oh, I've got to get my, maybe I can do it at five in the morning, I'll wake up, or, you know, I can do it at six in the evening when I'm catching the train home. And we're just thinking about our own little plan about how we'll get into Bible reading. But, but actually, this is not just something for us to do individually. It is something for us to do together as the people of God, as NCA Church. That verse from Colossians that I mentioned before, let the word of Christ dwell among you richly. It's a corporate instruction. This is something we are to do together. 
Uh, here on Sundays, for example, certainly the Bible reading and sermon should not be the limit of how we let the word of Christ dwell among us richly. We have songs as well. We have prayers also. But even beyond all those things, we have opportunities to speak words of encouragement to one another that are clothed and cloaked in the word of God. But beyond Sundays, we've got small groups during the week and when we meet in our homes or we catch up for coffee and of course there are times for talking about politics if that's your thing or about sport or about TV shows or beekeeping or times to do all those conversations. My friends, when all is said and done, what have we got to offer one another and what have we got to help one another to hold on to together that is any way more precious and more powerful and more life-giving and more glorious and more privileged than the powerful word of God. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you have spoken and you've spoken a clear word that is not far from us. And so help us to be people of the book, people of your word, who long to hear your voice, who long to live by it, trust it, believe it, obey it, and be formed by it. We pray that not just for ourselves individually, but for us as your people, as your church. Amen.